This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. So has your boss ever asked you to do something that had nothing to do with your actual job but became a time-consuming priority anyhow? Oh, like taking notes in a meeting, organizing the office holiday party, or onboarding new hires? Well, someone needs to do this stuff. These kinds of tasks are more harmful to women's careers than most of us realize and really hard to avoid, but not impossible, especially if we put to use the evidence-based insights of today's guest. Lisa Vesterlind is one of the authors of The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Lisa, welcome to Women at Work. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Before we dive into the conversation, I have been excited to have all day. Um, I just want to share a little bit more about you. So Lisa's a behavioral economist whose highly influential work shows how gender differences in competition, confidence, and expectations contribute to the persistent gender gap in advancement. So you can see she's, she's one of us. She really wants to make change here. She's the director of the Pittsburgh Experimental Economics Laboratory, known as Peel, and the Behavioral Economic Design Initiative. Do we say that as Betty, Lisa? We we do. I it's, like that. Uh, <laughs> purposefully selected to sound a little female. That's nice. Um, and she's also a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research and is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Economics at the University of Pittsburgh. So, Lisa, ever since I read it, and I got to tell you, I'm now I'm going to buy copies. There are going to be presents for everybody. They just have to accept this is what's coming this holiday season. I think it's important. But the No Club, both the club itself and the book, um, was created in concert with a very special group of women. Could you tell us about who they are and how you came together to do this? So about 12 years ago, um, I joined this club, uh, we formed this club that we named the No Club. Um, and it consisted of me and four other wonderful women. One of them was the very famous Linda Babcock, who's a professor in economics at Carnegie Mellon, who wrote the very well-known book on uh, gender and negotiation. Um, and another member of the club was Brenda Pizer, who at that time was the associate dean at the Heinz School at Carnegie Mellon. And then it was Lori Weingard, who at that time was the interim provost at Carnegie Mellon. And then it was a very dear friend of ours, MJ Tossi, who was a lawyer who had been fighting for sort of women's rights her entire career. So we all started to get together because we found, despite, as you can hear, it wasn't like we weren't accomplished. We, we were quite accomplished by most measures, um, but none of us were happy with where our careers were and where they were going because we were all working insane hours and feeling like we never really got to the work that we initially had been hired to do. So we started to meet on a regular basis, um, usually once a month and sort of discuss what was it that we were doing that were making us unhappy and how um, could we sort of try to wheel in all the work that we were doing and start focusing on sort of the core jobs that we had been hired to do. So in this process, um, there's a group of women that I have. Sometimes they're members of my personal board of directors. Other, They're just the team that helped me get through life. Um, and when we get together, our conversations can go in a million different directions unless somebody says, I need feedback. Um, but all of you came together and brought remarkable focus to your gatherings. Um, how did that happen and how did you sustain it? So we all knew Linda Babcock and she um, had sort of noticed that we all had the same problem and she was having the same problem as well. So she sent us an email and asked us to help her out and she felt like we were all having the, the same issue, namely that we were all taking on what we ultimately ended up calling non-promotable work, uh, which is work that helps out the organization, but doesn't help out the individual's career. So as you correctly started off the show with, 
you know, it could be onboarding new employees, it could be taking notes at a meeting, it could be handling that very time-consuming and challenging client that doesn't bring in a lot of revenue. Um, so a lot of this work that really needs to get done, but isn't going to get you noticed when it comes time for promotions or rewards or recognition within the organization. And all of all five of us had a lion's share of this work uh, on our plates. And we decided to sort of really pay attention and start being more strategic about the work that we were currently doing and trying to offload some of it, but also being very cognizant of the additional work we're adding to our plate. And really the meetings were focused pretty much on saying, what did you say yes to in the past month? And what did you say no to? And saying no would would uh, get everybody excited. Saying yes uh, would cause a lot of scrutiny <laughs> from the rest of the group um, because they really forced um, the rest of us or we forced one another to really think about if you say yes to something, where is that time going to come from? And looking at the loads that we had, it seemed like we all thought that we had more than 24 hours in the day. And these monthly meetings really forced us to come to terms with the fact that we couldn't take on any more work without getting rid of something else. So all of you... Um, well, one is an attorney, but all of you um, do research, leverage research in your work. Um, was the, the were you each doing research on this before you came in, and how did joining together in the No Club fuel the research that you did together? So Linda and I had previously, you know, Linda obviously had done a lot of research on on gender and negotiation. I had done a lot of research on gender and competition and uh, sort of confidence in general, always focused very much on women's advancement. The club was never started to fuel research, but after a while we had a lot of our male colleagues who would ask if they could join the club. And um, that was one of the few things that we immediately could say no to, uh, but it did cause us to sort of stop and begin to wonder whether or not this was a problem that everybody was having. You know, I've certainly never met a man that didn't feel overloaded with his work. We are all overloaded with our work, but we wondered whether this was, if there was a difference in the work that we were overloaded with. So once you started asking that question, despite the fact that we're sitting around and talking about our personal lives and drinking wine, you know, it's hard to keep your research hat off and, after a short while, we began to wonder, you know, how could we examine if this was a problem that women were facing more than men? Was it the case that women were doing more of what we characterized as this non-promotable work? Which, you know, really when we talk about non-promotable work, what we're talking about is work that isn't core to sort of the organization's mission. It tends to be work that is invisible and it tends to be work that lots of people can do. Mm -hmm. So with those sort of characteristics, we ended up, um, working with a professional services firm that had sort of meticulous accounts of their data. And um, we could look at all the different assignments that employees were doing and work with the management of this organization to get them to sort of look at how everybody was spending their time. And the management looked at the different assignments and they helped us identify what they thought was highly promotable and what was less promotable. And once we had those categories, we could then go and look at the employees in the organization. And what we found was that in this very large organization that women were spending 200 more hours per year on non-promotable work than their male colleagues. So they were spending a full month on work that they would never get recognized for. So that sort of made it very clear that this was a very substantial problem and it was in part because there were so many hours, but also because all of the other research we did showed that it really didn't matter what profession we looked at. Women in every single field that we looked at were doing more of this work. So if you are in academia, women are spending more time on committees, they're spending more time with undergraduates, whereas men are spending more time on research. If you look at lawyers, women are doing spending more time on pro bono work. Um, it even happens if you look when we looked at a survey of 
or a study that was done of supermarket clerks where women also were doing more non-promotable work, CSA agents, engineers, architects, every single field we looked at revealed that women everywhere were doing a lot more of this non-promotable work. So it wasn't just our little no club and it wasn't just a professional services firm that we looked at. It was a problem that was everywhere. You, by the way, your little no club is also, it's reminding me of um, that romantic notion that we have of artists in Paris, um, Picasso and Matisse influencing each other, debating, hanging out. And, 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 you, and the work that grew from these great minds coming together Lisa, mark my words. This was the, this was an important roundtable that all of you created that I think are going to have a big impact, I hope, are going to have a big impact on us going forward. Um, by the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Loris Arrow. My guest today is Professor Lisa Vesterlind, and we're talking about the amazing new book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. So, Lisa, when you were talking about how much you were sharing, how similar the frustration was that you were all experiencing. Um, brilliant women who had worked really hard to be able to do a certain kind of work that you couldn't progress at the rate that you wanted or with the intensity that you wanted because you were being pulled in all these directions. One of the things I really appreciated in the book is you talked about that there were different ways that that manifested for each of you that are actually important as we try to unpack how do we deal with this. Where is it that it takes the place of other work, or where is it that it just adds to work? Can you talk a little bit about those differences and how that shows up? Yeah, so um, you can sort of think about what happens when you end up with a lot more work that is non-promotable work. There is two ways you can respond. It's either that the non-promotable work takes over for the promotable work that you really should be doing. Um, we characterize that as being work-work imbalance, meaning that your load of non-promotable work is larger than it should be relative to your promotable work. Um, and sort of think about it as work-life balance. You know, you're you're not at the ideal spot if you have work-work imbalance. And the way it manifests um, is that you're running really, really fast, working on assignments that really don't count at the end of the day. So it's not just that your career is going to be stagnant. Uh, what's also going to happen is that you're going to feel, begin to doubt yourself. You're going to start feeling burned out. And one of one of the ways that, you know, one of the things that we keep talking about is that burnout for women is greater than it is for men. Work, work and balance is certainly one of the ways that this contributes. If you've acquired a time, you know, a, a long and time consuming degree and you've begin to work and you don't actually get to work, do the work that you were trained to do. You know, if you're a surgeon, you want to do surgery, you don't want to do administrative work. So work, work imbalance is sort of the, the thing that happens if you're um, just squeezing in the non-promotable work in your regular day. And so the other irony is for those of us who come with a lot of experience, we're well-trained, we have expertise, um, our hourly rate's not low. And then when we're asked to do these you know, non-promotable tasks, as the book clearly describes them, um, there's also a cost to the organization, isn't there? There's a huge cost to organizations. I mean, it's so, you know, one of the things that happens to the organization is that they're not tapping into the talent that they're brought on, you know, and, and I suspect that this has always been a problem that women were doing more non-promotable work. I think there's no doubt that getting rid of all the administrative staffs that many of us have seen disappearing, all of that work didn't disappear. It went somewhere. So thank you for saying this. I have been <laughs> arguing about this now for probably 15 years. So um, passing that on to someone who's making a lot more per hour um, than the administrative staff that we had before is not optimal for the organization. So the organization is suffering both because they're not using their talents optimally, also because they're not able to identify the true talent if they let uh, people spend a lot of time on non-promotable work. If we hire, say, young male and female MBAs, we should be focusing on identifying who's best at doing the non-promotable work and who's best at doing the promotable work. And we can't figure that out if we give one gender all the non-promotable work and the other one all the promotable. So it really, it's it's very costly to the organization because it prevents them from identifying the talent. 
So the argument in the book is not that everybody should be spending the same amount of time on non-promotable work. Everybody has to do some non-promotable work, but the people who sh should be spending the most time on non-promotable work should be those who are best at that and perhaps not so good at the promotable work. But we need to figure that out first. So it comes at very large cost to the organization in terms of lost efficiency. It also comes at very large cost to the organization because they end up with a culture where nobody's pitching in. Right. We want to, you know, if, if you, in any organization, there's going to be work that is not contractually assigned to a particular employee. Mm -hmm. And we want to have an organization where people are incentivized to pick up the slack when that happens. And uh, the, the way it's set up right now is that there are very few incentives to take on the non-promotable work. And um, so we're, we're really hurting ourselves by not thinking carefully about how we distribute this work and how we reward it. Doesn't it also kind of poison the well? Um, there was a section where there, that you were talking about in the book where it can create a negativity. Um, I think about times, um, I, I, my own name for it is I've noticed this thing that I call the tornado of negativity. Um, and you can tell me how real this is or not, but that I've seen particularly women who are in kind of the ghetto of all women have this particular role. And when an organization is sliding them, overlooking them, taking um, taking them for granted and overworking them with these kind of non-promotable tasks, a resentment starts to foment. And it feels like it becomes contagious. The whole room gets angry. And it yeah. percolates and goes out into other parts of the organization. Yeah, I mean, it really... Um, you you know, not having systems in place that help us all share this work is, is undoubtedly bad for the organization. And part of what we're pushing for is that it's in the organization's interest to find better ways of distributing this work. It is clearly um, both important to the organization, but also to the individuals. And there are different mechanisms that we can use to accomplish this. So one you talked about is instead of matching up um, the non-promotable task with the same person you always ask, there are different ways to approach this that seem pretty reasonable. So I think in order to think about how to improve on how we allocate this work, we really need to understand first why women end up doing this work. Um, so there, there are lots of different solutions that we have to how we can allocate this work, um, but critical in understanding that is really that we first understand why women end up with this work. Um, and um, to understand that, we ran a, a number of studies in our laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh, where we really tried to sort of say, well, how is it that we allocate this work when it comes down to this work that none of us want to do? How do we tend to allocate it? And certainly the way it happens at my institution um, is often that we all get together in a room, the chair or the, you know, the president of the university or the dean comes in and asks somebody to take on the assignment that nobody wants. And it, of course, gives rise to this very uncomfortable pause where everybody's sitting around, nobody wants to take it on. We had played this uncomfortable waiting game where we're waiting for somebody to raise their hand. So we asked for volunteers for these assignments that nobody really wants. And we wanted to study how we end up getting these assignments distributed. So um, what we did was that we brought in hundreds of these of groups where we matched people up in groups of three. And we told each group, you have two minutes to find a volunteer to take on this assignment that everybody wants to get done, but nobody wants to do by themselves. They would much rather have somebody else do it. So everybody wants the job to get done, but they would prefer if somebody else did it instead of them. Now, what happened in this setting, we brought in you know, both men and women into our laboratory. They have these two minutes, and if, as you might imagine, what also happens when you go into a meeting is that it becomes very uncomfortable until the very end and eventually somebody reluctantly raises their hand. Well, it, lo and behold, people do raise their hand and they raise their hand at the very end of these two minutes. Now, the interesting part, of course, was whether or not this was done by women or done by men. 
And what we saw was that women raised their hand 48% more than men. So from the very beginning, each individual is in 10 different groups. From the very beginning of this, women are raising their hand more, and they continue to do that in every single round that they're in. So women raise their hand more, and they end up earning less in the experiment because they volunteer more than men. Now, the key part, of course, is why women are doing this. Is it just because they're better at the task? Well, in our case, it wasn't because they were better at the task, because all they had to do was to click a button. And I can assure you, women and men are equally good at clicking a button. <laughs> right. So it wasn't because women were better at doing the job. So that wasn't why they were volunteering more. But they could have been volunteering more because they potentially were more altruistic. It could be that women just looked at the group and said, oh, it's in everybody's interest that we find a volunteer. I'm going to be the one who takes it on. Now, to study that, we decided to say, well, let's look at what happens if we only have women in, in a group or only have men in the group. Now, if women are more altruistic, what we should see is that the all-female groups would volunteer more than the all-male group. So we ran the experiment by bringing in all women or all men into the study. And what we saw in that case was that the single female groups and the single male groups volunteered at exactly the same rate. So there were no differences in preferences. If there had been differences in preferences, we should have seen different volunteering rates in these two mm -hmm. groups. What instead was going on was that when we took the men out of the group, the women realized that there are no men in the group, so they could rely on other people to volunteer, so they could relax a little bit and not volunteer as much. And similarly, in the all-male groups, when we had taken the females out, they realized that nobody was going to volunteer unless they did. So it wasn't that the men didn't know how to click the button. It's just that they only did it when the women weren't in the group. So it says that we're so socialized to these gendered norms of men, yes. kind of like I think about like holiday dinner or when you have a dinner party and who's cleaning up and who's not. And the, you know, men can put dinner together and it gets cleaned up, but there's a different dynamic when we're all together. And it sounds like it's so ingrained in how we operate together that it's made itself so present in our work lives, in every work environment. Yeah. And, and you know, so you're absolutely right that what is driving this dynamic when we have both men and women together is this collective expectation that women will do the work. And men are expecting it of women and women have internalized that expectation. So when a new undesirable assignment comes up, they take it on because they know otherwise nobody is going to do it. So these norms and expectations that we have for women that may have been coming from the household have unfortunately made its way into the workplace where they really have no role. So we, we get this, you know, we have these collective expectations that spills over to the case when we then have a manager who comes in and looks at who they're going to assign the work to. So we ran a series of studies also where before the group has to find a volunteer, we instead bring in a manager who looks at the people in the group and gets to send a message saying, hey, could you please be the one who volunteers? And everybody else gets to see that somebody has been voluntold to do the job. And consistent with this being driven by expectations, we see that the manager asked the female members in the group more than the male members. So the females are asked 44% more than the males in the group. And this happens independent of whether or not the manager is male or female. Both male and female managers ask women more because they expect them to say yes. And lo and behold, even though women are asked many more times than men, they say yes 50% more than men when they're asked to do so. We need to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how do we handle it when we're voluntold? How can we navigate our way through this dynamic? And there is a way. So make sure you come back. I'll be continuing my conversation with Lisa Vesterland about her book, The No Club. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm the executive director of Wharton People Analytics. And I'm talking this hour with Lisa Vesterlin. She's the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Economics at the University of Pittsburgh and one of the co-authors of the really amazing book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you. So right before the break, we were talking about this dynamic that happens. All of us have experienced it, where um, we're in a group setting, and uh, either there's the painful silence of who's going to take on something, and the question is, like, who caves first when there's silence in that room, or worse, when we're voluntold, just put in the position of, Laura, would you please get coffee for everybody? In those moments, and I've had those experiences, both of them, um, it's emotionally a, really hard to sit for, I, I'm one of those people, I can't stand the silence. So it's hard for me to sit and watch and worry that, like, one, we can't move on to anything else that we need to talk about, but also that this thing isn't going to get done and shouldn't I be a good sport and raise my hand? Um, or when I'm voluntold, how can I possibly say no in a group setting? So when these things are happening, what can we do to navigate them in the moment? And then we can talk about how do we like dial back and look at the pattern and address it. So I, th I think the, the the first step, of course, is to become aware of what is the non-promotable work that sort of ends up filling up your plate. What what is the work that you end up taking on, so that you can recognize it when it happens. You know there there are many cases where we we've done a lot of interviews with young men and women, and there are many cases where people end up taking on assignments because they somehow were told that it would be really good for their career. But when you take sort of a step back and think about these character the characteristics of non-promotable work, they will realize that, that this is, is not work that will help them out. So first recognizing whether or not the assignment is non-promotable, you know, if nobody else is raising their hand, it's probably a good sign. This is not the best assignment to take. So that, that should be your first clue. Um, as, as much, and I think also realizing, understanding that this is very influenced by these collective expectations that we all, all hold, so that you begin to understand why it is that you feel so guilty when you think about not doing it. You know, I had a very interesting conversation with a journalist where um, they were wondering why one of the females in their office always, whenever they got a big project, was the one who would write out sort of the dates and deliverables in order to finish the big project. And they had all agreed that the reason why she was the one who volunteered was because she had a lower tolerance of stress. And, and she herself said, yeah, it must be because I have a lower tolerance of stress. But if you go back to our experiment, where we saw that women were volunteering more because they knew nobody else was going to do it, we're back in the exact same situation. Indeed, when this particular female journalist was putting everything together, it was a much more stressful situation for her because she knew that everybody was counting on her to do it. So if she didn't do it, nobody would do it. Right. Whereas everybody else could look at it in a very relaxed manner because they knew that she was going to do it. So when we come into these sort of office settings where we either have to take notes to schedule a meeting or serve on a committee that nobody else wants to be on, it's important to recognize why it is that you end up taking on these assignments because everybody is expecting of it, it of you, and therefore it's very hard for you to sort of hold back. That being said, we've spoken to you know lots of organizations, and, and, and people have different tricks. You know, one of the organizations they told the women when they got to that uncomfortable stage to start mimicking the body language of their male colleagues. So try to be disengaged. Don't feel like you're the deer in the headlight. Realize that everybody is waiting for you to take it on. So don't look like you're the one who's going to take no, it so on. No, so like cross your legs, put your arm out, turn to your neighbor. Yes. Or look at your, look phone, at your phone to, to your see notes. that very important message that just came in. You know, so at the end of the day, though, that's not how we want employees to act. Like, And that's exactly why it really, the fact that this is driven by expectations really puts the burden on the organization because there only is so much that the individual can do. Well, we, you know, I think we have in our own process found a lot of advice on, on how to say no to these requests and in particular how to sort of 
negotiate your yeses so that they don't become so burdenful. And all of those are really helpful. So in particular, if you say no, think about what it is that the requester wants. The requester wants a solution. So giving a quick explanation saying, I'm working on the product launch. I really can't be organizing the holiday party, but I, you know, we just hired Jim. He's new to the organization. It would really help him to get to know lots of people. Why don't we put him on it? So solve the requester's problem and give a quick explanation is a way of saying no that will sort of prevent the backlash that you may experience because you're expected to say yes. So one of the reasons why it's so hard for women to say no in these situations is that everybody expects them to say yes. So it's not as easy for women to say no as it is for men. So thinking carefully about these expectations should help you narrow in on how you can say no, but also narrow in on how you can say yes when you have to say yes, because it isn't just a no yes choice. The yeses can be negotiated. You might say, yes, I'm happy to do the, you know, the website committee if you can take me off the holiday party, or I'm happy to be on the recruiting committee if you can take me off another non-promotable task. So offload one of the non-promotable tasks that you already have in order to take on another non-promotable task. Another way to think about it is to say, okay, I will do it this time if you have somebody else lined up to take it next time, because what we often see is that women start saying yes, and then they get pigeonholed into taking that assignment over and over and over again. So having sort of an exit strategy in line can help out. Another way is to look at the assignment and say, you know, this is a really big assignment. Why don't we split it in three? I'll do part A, which I'm really good at. And then we'll give Jim and John the two other parts because they're really good at that. So trying to be more strategic in how we take on this work and sort of being cognizant also of sort of the, the triggers that you have for accepting this work so that you, you pause, you know, you don't, when you get asked to do something, you don't have to say yes right away. Linda had this rule where she, she will always wait 24 hours before she says yes, but she can say no right away. Um, one of my big problems was that I always somehow thought that I, if I just ran a little bit faster, <laughs> right. I could always fit in more work. Like you were a last girl. You could just keep stretching to exactly. make it all happen. If you just tried a little bit harder, you could fit it all in. And what the club really helped me think about is what is the implicit no that I have every time I take something on? So if I'm going to take on this last minute assignment on a Friday evening, what what does what is the stuff that I'm saying no to instead? And I was working so many hours that the implicit no every single time became my family. And while it was hard for me to say no to someone who told me that they really needed my help over the weekend, it became much easier to say no when I made the choice between the person asking me and my very deserving children. So thinking carefully about what the implicit no was for me really made it much easier for me to decline requests that seemed very urgent and where I felt selfish if I said no. Lisa, I got to tell you, that was one of the books that I felt like somebody was holding up a mirror to me. And because um, if you asked me abstractly, would I take time away from my family to work, I would have said no. But then I thought back on a number, even like a number of weekends in the last year around some things where I was like, you know what, that's a great project I'm interested in, or that's something that needs to get done. And I thought about all the time that I'm standing there in the kitchen on my phone when my partner's like, are you ready for dinner? We're here. Can you come show up? And that yeah. I wasn't even, um, I wasn't mindful about the degree to which I was letting it creep in and not having barriers. And it's particularly bad if what you let creep in is the work that you get no recognition for. So lots of us uh, working too many hours. Um, and that's unfortunate in many ways, but it is particularly unfortunate if you're working extra hours on work that doesn't get recognized. One of the interesting things that we saw in this uh, data from the professional services firm was that while women who were junior yet to become partners while they were spending 200 more hours of non-promotable work, they're also spending 200 fewer hours on promotable work. So they had work-work imbalance. When we looked at the women who actually had become partners, 
they were spending 200 more hours on the non-promotable work, but were spending the same number of hours on promotable work. So the only way that they could succeed was to carry this giant load of non-promotable work with them so that they could get the recognition to get promoted, but they still had all the non-promotable right, work. Right, which we know is not healthy and not sustainable. This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Lisa Vesterlin, behavioral economist and one of the authors of The No Club, putting a stop to women's dead-end work. Lisa, I want to dial back to something, partly because I think we sort of defined it in the first half when we were talking, and it's so important, especially to some of the questions I have for you. Um, non-promotable tasks. Th- that term is really important. It's not just tasks that we don't want to do. Um, And it's not just tasks that weren't necessarily what we were educated to do. Talk about why that issue of promotability is so important and what are the kinds of things that qualify as an an NPT? So uh, an NPT is an assignment that helps out your organization but doesn't help out your career. And we have sort of zoned in on three characteristics that I think really help people determine uh, when they look at their own assignment, whether or not it's promotable or not. And the first is whether or not the assignment is directly tied to the mission of the organization. So if you're working in a for-profit firm, doing work that isn't revenue generating is unlikely to be um, promotable. The second characteristic is whether or not it's visible. So if you're editing somebody else's work, if you're putting a presentation together but not giving it, Nobody will see what you did. It's likely to be non-promotable. And the final, and I think very important characteristic, is the extent to which the task requires your unique and specialized skills. And this is really where it where where it matters a lot. And this is where I think the solutions to this problem are much easier than the solutions that we found for other problems, because non-promotable work tends to be work that almost everybody can do. You know, in order to take notes at a meeting. All you need is a pulse. Right. right. Anybody who's in that it. room could take notes. Exactly. That's why they're and in the room. May, and we may sort of convince ourselves, oh, but there's somebody who's slightly better at it. The point is that it doesn't really matter. Like, so that slightly better is not good enough to take them off something that is really promotable. Right. So it's how closely tied it is to the mission. Is it visible? And can anybody do it? And if you were saying yes to sing- every single one of those, you're likely to be looking at work that won't help you get promoted. Now, the reason why <clears throat> we sort of are excited about trying to address this is since everybody can do it, we can easily improve how we allocate this work. And by improving how we allocate this work, we will help address all these differences that we're seeing between men and women. We know that doing more non-promotable work will hurt your wages. Uh, we know that doing more non-promotable work prevents you from going in and improving your wages when you negotiate. If you negotiate and you're doing non-promotable work, you will not be efficient. It will not help you increase your salary. Of course, we know that you won't advance. And we also know that if you're doing a lot of non-promotable work, you're likely to get um, greater burnout. So all of the gender differences that we've been seeing can all be improved if we help get women greater access to the work that really counts in the organization. So another way of thinking about it is um, I'm picturing the McKinsey uh, LeanIn.org Women in the Workplace report. And there's always the graphic of the pipeline, but it's a leaky pipeline. And the point of the graphics is showing you when all of these women, in particular women of color, are dropping out of the pipeline to leadership roles, and they're not getting promoted. And it's kind of um, amazing. It's not kind of. It is amazing and powerful to think about these moments that happen almost every day are having this profound effect on people's ability to stay and grow within the organization. No, absolutely. There's another, there's a very interesting study that was done by McKinsey and Lean In as well, where they um, surveyed over 400 organizations and sort of tried to assess what type of assignments were seen as critical to the organization. And some of the assignments that they thought were critical to the organization that they wanted their leaders to be involved in was checking in on employee well-being. You know, is your work life 
loads appropriate? You know, how are you doing emotionally? 90% of the organizations thought that that was important to do. Only 25% of the organizations had any form of recognition of this work. And lo and behold, this was work that female leaders were far more likely to be engaged with. The same thing happened when they looked at efforts on diversity, equity, and inclusion. 70% of the organizations thought that this was really important work to be done. But again, there was very limited recognition of this work. So it's work that we know is important, but somehow we're not recognizing so it. And we'll, yeah, go ahead. So in this, though, there's an interesting element where when I think about, because I do this as a manager, um, I consider it part of helping make sure my team is thriving and succeeding and that everybody's okay. Um, and so it has value to my team. But the issue sounds like if I'm not recognized for it, it's kind of secondary, like they're performing, they get recognized, but I won't get recognized because it's not connected to me. Is Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You make the organization, it's, it's like you're the oil that makes all the wheels turn in, in the organization, but nobody is realizing that that's why the organization is, is working so well. And while there's a lot of this work that it is hard to, it's not like we could just say, oh, we should reward you for checking in on employee well-being. You know, maybe we could to some extent, but there's a lot of the non-promotable work that really just is non-promotable in nature. Lots right. of people can do it. So it's very hard to to really make it rewarded. So one of one of the things is to sort of create expectations about the amount of non-promotable work that should be done when we were um the Harvard Kennedy School, in response to, to our work, decided to just make expectations for how much non-promotable work everybody had to do. And if you hadn't performed a certain number of hours of non-promotable work, you just couldn't get So how much committee service you do, how many exactly. meetings you go to, right. Exactly. Another way to do it is to think about how we allocate this work, as you were touching about on that before. If we know that women are more likely to volunteer when we ask for a volunteer, let's not ask for a volunteer. Let's put names into a hat. Mm -hmm. Let's take turns. You know, let's encourage managers who know that they time and again will get an assignment that they know nobody wants to take on to write out lists and think about, should I just give it to the person who will say happy to, or should I give it to somebody who hasn't taken on this type of work? So we start tracking who's doing what. The final step is also just to say, is there work that currently is non-promotable that really could be made promotable? And while there's some work that by nature is non-promotable, there's some that seem to just have fallen through the cracks. If we think about onboarding, right? everybody is spending lots of resources to interview and bring in promising new hires to the organization. Losing a new hire is incredibly expensive for the organization, and yet the job of onboarding and bringing them into the organization and making sure that they are have connected all the different uh, links that they need somehow goes unrewarded. And there is no reason why it should be unrewarded because it's directly it's tied to the mission of the organization. And it's not something, it's very visible. We can see that they're, they're bringing people in. And finally, it's not a job that everybody can do well. Right. So it passes so all getting, three tests. It's exactly. So all of those characteristics are there. So we really should reconsider if we're concerned about retaining our employees, maybe a job like onboarding is something that we could make a promotable task. So it really is to start thinking about what are the promotable and non-promotable assignments that we have in the organization? Are we rewarding the right work? Are we distributing the work the way that we intend to do? And are there ways that we can start mentoring certainly our young new employees to understand the work that we really care about so that they all get the same opportunities to demonstrate their potential in the organization? For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm Laura Zarrow talking with Lisa Vesterlin, a behavioral economist and one of the authors of The No Club, putting a stop to women's dead end work. So it's you know increasingly clear how important it is to see 
non-promotable tasks as we're being asked to do them, um, to look at how we, A, prevent ourselves from volunteering or accepting being voluntold, putting those negotiation skills to use, those difficult conversation skills that we've all developed um, to use in navigating this, and finding safer, not safer, but more um, equitable purposeful, strategic ways of assigning them. And one of the things you talked about in the book, because and I've also thought about it as I'm reflecting on my own NPTs, is sometimes there are some NPTs it's okay to hold on to, but that we've got to be purposeful about it. Talk to me about um, how we should evaluate those for ourselves and how do we strike the right balance of the ones that we hold on to. Oh, so you're absolutely right. You know, so... Um, the way we we try to think about sort of our part of we try to think about our portfolio work, um, and part of that job is to figure out how many NPTs should you be doing. If you're doing a lot more than your colleagues, then you should try to offload some of that that work. But you should also think about what are the NPTs that you want to hold on to. So time and again, I've spoken to women who said, "But I really care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I want to spend time." doing that kind of work, which is excellent, but then they shouldn't be doing a lot of the other NPCs. So if they really care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it doesn't mean that they should be doing it without any recognition. It should be part of their portfolio of non-promotable work, but then they should get rid of some of the other non-promotable work that they don't care so much about and that they may not be very good at. So it's, it's really limiting, you know, limiting the amount of non-promotable work that you're doing and then thinking strategically about where is it that you can contribute the most? What is the non-promotable work that you really care about? That's the kind of work that you should hold on to. And in having the conversation with a manager, making clear that this is not about shirking. You're, you're not trying to cut down on the amount of work that you're doing. What you're trying to figure out is solve this joint problem of understanding how you best can contribute to the organization. And what you're feeling right now is that you're not contributing enough. And you think that perhaps if you're doing more promotable work, if your skills were really put to better use, that you could contribute more. And perhaps you could contribute more if you spent time on the non-promotable work that you're really passionate about and that you have experience in doing. So it's, it's really that sort of recognizing what the promotable and non-promotable is, and then prioritizing the non-promotable work that you really care about and not thinking, oh, I like it so much that I should be doing it without offloading something else. So let me bring up one particular type of non-promotable work that I think should be promotable. I think should be like moved into that other category, and that's mentorship. Um, like I think about, I'm so, um, I love mentoring. Um, especially, you know, women who are interested in um, making a difference and advancing in their careers. It's time consuming. Um, it's often invisible. Um, talk to me about how, one, to balance how much time we're putting towards mentorship. And then when we are mentoring, how do we carry this wisdom to our mentees so that they can be aware of it? So that's a... Um, that's. A I know it's a dual prong question. Yeah. So, to, so to, you know, when we think about what non-promotable work we can make promotable, what we really want to think about is what is valued by other organizations. You know, so at the end of the day, what what is troublesome, to, as much as I said that the Kennedy School had made a sort of a clear expectation for how much non-promotable work you, you should do. There are other organizations that instead start arguing, oh, but we should have another track for employees so that if you are really good at doing the non-promotable work, there's another way of advancing. Now, the, the challenge with that is that it's going to lead a lot of people astray because at the end of the day, what will get you to really get the big salary increases and retention packages is getting an outside offer. And those outside offers will go to the work that is most critical to the organization's mission. So having a big client, if you're a lawyer, is what matters. Bringing in summer interns is good, but nobody is going to see it from the outside. Nobody is going to say, oh, she was so good at bringing in summer interns to the firm. That's why we want to recruit her. So keeping an eye to what is it that is valued from the outside. Now, certainly being a really good mentor 
might be something that is seen to the outside. But it is where, certainly in academia, mm-hmm. we have we have never considered anybody for a job because they were a really good mentor. I have to say, I've never yeah. written, I have to admit, or seen a job description that said, and in addition to having all these skills, we want you to be an excellent mentor. Exactly. So that's where, as much as we want to make some, as much as we look at an assignment and we say that is really important work, it matters greatly to the organization, it is hard to make everything promotable. And it's when we get into that bucket of jobs that are hard to just say that should really get a big reward. It can get some reward. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it is not the type of work that really will matter if you want to advance within the organization. So it's fine to say that is where I want to spend my non-promotable time. But it's hard for an organization to start saying that work will be valued as much as working with clients or doing a new product launch. So that brings me full circle. So you shared so much that's valuable with us, um, ways that we need to wake up, identify these things as they're happening to us, as we're either volunteering or voluntold, um, but that we still need help navigating them as we're making our own decisions. And that's where a club comes in. So with the minute or so that we have left, um, could you just share a little guidance? And by the way, get the book, explains how to do all of this in the book. But um, how can we, how should we look towards setting up clubs with one another to help us have a team to support us? I, I mean, I, I think, you know, wine certainly helps. That, <laughs> you know, um, no, I, I think it's, it's rare that you find other people who will support you and really root for your success. And and that is where it really is valuable to set up um, a no club. And we have a lot of guidance in the book on, on how to set these up. Um, what, what is so wonderful in, in a no club is that the conversation is steered towards a particular topic. It is not just your standard note. It's not just your, your standard book club where nobody has read the book, but everybody's talking, you know, there, there is a mission in the no club um, that really helps you reflect on where you're going with your career. And by having multiple other people in the club to give feedback, you're getting many different perspectives. And what was really helpful in our club was that many of the cases that were really hard to think about how to say no to, the club helped sort of come up with proposals and, you know, concrete solutions that made it much easier to navigate this constant request that we're getting for non-promotable work. So it says to me, gather your women, be frank with each other, make a safe place. Then having more than one person makes a big difference and know that you really can navigate this, especially if you get the book. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. People want to find you. Where should they look? TheNoClub.com is the best place to get a hold of us. Fantastic. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.